Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. So an Anglican priest, a Jewish rabbi, and a Muslim imam are meeting together at an interfaith council when they're interrupted by a secretary who rushes in exclaiming, God's on the phone for you, Father Jones. Well, the priest picks up the phone and he listens for a moment. He nods gravely and then he hangs up. And he turns to the rabbi and the imam and he says, well, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is that God loves us. The bad news is he's calling from Salt Lake City. <laughs> Wait for it. <sighs> okay. So we are a people, I've discovered in the last few years in particular, who can be divided by the smallest of things, the smallest of differences. Maybe you've noticed it too. And the world often looks at religious people and it says, why can't you all just get along? Why can't you all just get along? After all, you all really believe the same thing and you worship the same God. In fact, all religions are equal is the mantra of our postmodern Western culture, the belief that differences in religion don't matter. The main point being that if there is a God, he or she just wants us all to get along and love each other. But is this true? Is God indifferent to how we do religion? Are all religions equally salvific, whether Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, or Christian, for example? Do they all just share a common core that leads to the same place? In our scripture reading today, Jesus' words give us clarity on these questions, and they bring order to the chaos of postmodern Western culture. Jesus reveals his love for us through his simplicity, making it clear that, yes, there is one way to be saved, and it is through believing in him. So let's turn to our gospel reading for today and see what God would say to each one of us through what's been called one of the most comforting passages in all of scripture. It's John chapter 14. You can follow along on your scripture sheets if you want to. And the context for our passage today is that the disciples are troubled. There's been great euphoria because just prior to this, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. There's been these huge celebrations. But now he gives them these confusing words about the imminent betrayal that he will experience and denial as well by some of them. You know, they thought that he was going to be the all-conquering king, the new David, who's come to rescue them from Roman occupation. But he seems to be talking about defeat, and so they're dismayed. And so Jesus seeks to comfort them. And in verses, 14, uh, verses 1 onwards, we read this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. It reminds me of a passage from the Old Testament, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that many of you may have memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. You see, their hearts are troubled because they're not trusting in him, trusting that his ways are best both here on this earth and also in the future with regards to the afterlife. 
And Jesus understands that many of our deepest fears, many of the deepest fears of any human being, stem from concern about what's going to happen after we die. You see, we all have a longing for heaven. Kendall was supposed to preach this morning, but unfortunately he has COVID. <laughs> and so in honor of Kendall, I have a quote from C.S. Lewis, of course. <laughs> it wouldn't be a Kendall sermon without one. So C.S. Lewis calls this, inconsolable, uh, calls this the inconsolable longing. In his book, The Problem of Pain, he writes this, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our spouses or made our friends or chose our work, and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows spouse or friend or work. And if you don't believe me that we all have a yearning for heaven deep within us, then just look around you. Look outside of these windows, take a walk after church today. Our church building sits in the middle of an attempt to create heaven on earth, a utopian community, if you will. And yet, after you live here for a while, you realize it still falls far short of the perfect world that deep down we all long for. There's still crime and cruelty in our midst. Adultery and divorce still happen. Self-centeredness and greed are still rampant. And death and sickness, sadly, still occur every day. And it's troubling because the one thing we want the most seems to be just out of our reach, even by our best human efforts. Heaven, our perfect home, a place where there's no more pain or suffering or cruelty or hatred, seems unobtainable. And so Jesus reassures the disciples and all those who've lived ever since that despite what he's saying about his impending betrayal and his death and his departure, he is in fact going to prepare a place for them and for all believers that they too can come to. In fact, it's the place where he'll, be, where he'll be and that they already know the way to get there. Well, Thomas, never one afraid to ask a bold question, he isn't so sure about this last point about knowing where to go. And so we have this dialogue between him and Jesus in verses five through seven. Perhaps you caught it. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. How do they get to where Jesus is? Well, Jesus is the way. He is the way. And what does that mean? Well, commentator Bruce Milne puts it like this. The way to heaven is Jesus himself. Faith in him shatters the barrier of sin and death and blasts open the road to the eternal life of the kingdom of God. It is the road that leads to life. Well, you can't help but notice that this is a pretty exclusive claim in a very inclusive kind of world, something that, as we noted at the beginning, many people today would in fact refute, saying that all religions are equally valid, and no one religion has the corner on belief in God, that all religious doctrine is really the same. And yet, if we stop and think about it for a moment, this kind of idea, too, is nonsensical and arrogant. First of all, it doesn't make sense. To quote the dean of my seminary, Justin Terry, he writes this, 
does it really make sense to say that the Christian claim that Jesus died on the cross and the Muslim claim that he didn't should be treated as equally valid? Such thinking would not be welcomed in other fields of thought. It would not, for instance, be acceptable in the world of banking. My view that I have $100,000 in my account is not going to be taken as seriously as my bank's very different view, says Terry. <laughs> nor would it be accepted in the field of engineering. My view that a 30-foot-long bridge should be enough to cross a river will not take precedence over accurate measurements. Praise God, right? <laughs> Second, though, it's not just nonsensical, it's arrogant. As Tim Keller puts it, ironically, the insistence that doctrines do not matter is really a doctrine in itself. It's really a doctrine in itself. It holds a specific view of God which is touted as superior and more enlightened than the beliefs of most major religions. So the proponents of this view do the very thing they forbid in others. Guess what proponents of this idea are really saying is that they have the way, the truth, and the life. That their way is the only way. And this is no different than the exclusive claim that Jesus is making today in our gospel reading. Except, except Jesus has much firmer ground to make this claim on. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, this is how the Lausanne movement, an international partnership of Christians from across the globe, puts this. They write this, from the Nicene Creed, that's the creed we'll say immediately after this sermon, and from the Nicene Creed in the fourth century to Chalcedon, to the Reformation, and post-Reformation confessions, Christ has been seen as unique. He was the only incarnation of God in human flesh who died for us on the cross. He did what no one else could do or has done. He bore our sins and rose again for our justification. There was no one else like him in his time, and there is no one else like him in ours. He was and is unique, without rival, peer, equal, or comparison. He is in a category by himself. He is God, the incarnate and sovereign Lord, without whom we would still be hopeless orphans in a cold and indifferent world. Men and women across the ages have worshipped him, served him, suffered for him, and sometimes died for him. He could call forth our highest praise, our deepest commitment, our greatest service because of who he is and what he has done. This is what we call the doctrine of the uniqueness of Christ. And it is critical, it is crucial, because only someone who claimed to be who Jesus claimed to be can do what Jesus did, including to be claiming to be God himself. Yes, at the second half, or in the second half of our gospel, you probably notice he says this, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Only God himself can make a way to be saved and implement it. Nothing else makes sense. And Jesus is clear here, and on numerous other occasions, that he is God. He believes that that he and the Father are one, and he backs it up by the powerful works he does while on this earth. Now, please note that to say that Jesus is the only way to God does not imply that every idea in a non-Christian religion is devoid of value. 
Non-Christians may find that their God-given conscience leads them to obey certain elements of the law of God that's been engraved on their hearts. For instance, many other religions would say, do not murder. In the same way, non-Christians as religious seekers may at one point or another express a response which reflects a valid truth. And other religions contain truth within them. They just don't contain the whole truth. Jesus alone, as he himself is saying here, is the way to God, and he is the way for all, as whatever religious background of an individual or lack of religion, Jesus in his grace welcomes every one of them to the Father if they'll come through him. For them, he is ready to prepare a place for them also in his Father's home. Well, as we come to an end, I want to read an article I read online this week titled, An Open Letter to Teenagers Facing Doubts About Christianity. An Open Letter to Teenagers Facing Doubts About Christianity. And it's by one of my favorite Christian authors right now. It's a lady called Rebecca McLaughlin, who is a brilliant young woman from Oxford. And she writes this. People sometimes say that all religions teach us basically the same thing. And that is arrogant, uh, and that it is arrogant to think that one religion is right and others are wrong. But even if we compare only the three major world religions that believe there is only one God, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, we find irreconcilable differences. For instance, Christians believe Jesus to be the creator God made flesh, while unbelieving Jews and Muslims totally reject this claim. In addition, Christians believe that Jesus died on a cross and was physically raised from the dead three days later, while unbelieving Jews believe that he died and stayed dead, whereas Muslims believe that Jesus did not die, but only seemed to die. It is not respectful to people who follow different religions to say that they all believe the same thing. It is disrespectful because it shows we have not listened carefully to what each of these religions teaches. When it comes to Jesus, he either died on a cross and was raised from the dead, or he did not and was not. If Jews are right that Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christians are wrong. If Christians are right, then Jews and Muslims are wrong. She wraps up by saying this, as followers of Jesus, we must tell people the truth, but we must never do so arrogantly as if we think we are better than them. Instead, the Bible calls us to explain the reason for our hope in Jesus with gentleness and respect, 1 Peter 3.15. According to the Bible, we are so bad that we needed Jesus to die for us, but anyone can get in on Jesus' offer of forgiveness and new life if he will only put his trust in Jesus. And so we're back to where we began today, the call to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. It all boils down to trust. Do we trust God or not? Do we trust that his way is the way? Or do we want to play God in our loving ignorance and decide that having many ways is better or fairer or easier, all the while leading others down the wrong path in what one of our previous bishops, uh, Bishop Fitzsimmons Allison, called the cruelty of heresy? What we believe about the uniqueness of Christ truly matters for us and for those we love and for anyone else in this world. It has incredible temporal and eternal consequences. And while this may not be a popular message in our contemporary culture, guess what? It wasn't in first century Palestine either. They killed the guy who had this message. And then as we saw in our epistle, the guys who followed him, they kicked him out of numerous towns and tried to kill them too. It wasn't popular back then. 
but it's still the only message that leads to freedom from sin and from death as well. And you know, the most shocking thing is not that there's only one way to be saved. No, that's not the most shocking thing. The most shocking thing is that there is even a way to be saved. Think about it. None of us deserves to be saved, and yet God, in his grace and his mercy, sends Jesus to die for us, to live a perfect life on this earth, that we might repent and believe in him and choose to follow him, and one day spend all of eternity walking in the new heaven and earth with God. This is the gospel, and anything else is a distortion and is powerless to save. Let's receive it, let's believe it, and let's go out in the power of the Spirit and share it boldly, doing greater works even than Jesus himself, as Jesus ends this passage telling us. It will change the world around us right now and forevermore. And let me close with the words of Peter from our epistle reading today. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And for this, we can all say, thanks be to God. Amen.